0: I'd like to tell you a little story that goes back to 2011 for our family. We decided, after some careful thought and some prayer and some leadings, that we thought, yes, we should apply to be foster carers. And by the end of that year, we had two children in placement with us and some of you may well remember Phoebe and Riley. And throughout the next year or 18 months, we learnt a lot. We had ups and downs. We had good times. We had a lot of tough times. And we, a lot of the time, Relied on people in this church to help us through. People would draw close and offer support in various ways and pray for us and enable us to keep going. And after a couple of years we were able to do one of the hardest things I think that we've done in our life and that was to allow these two children, to be adopted from our home and go on to spend the rest of their lives uh, with two other people. And although that was really tough, we felt it was the right thing. And we looked forward to doing more fostering. So we went away on holiday as a family, came back to be told some of what we'd done in handing over the children for adoption was wrong. So wrong that we were not eligible to foster at the current time and things would have to be investigated. And at that point we wondered what are you doing God? Surely you told us To go into fostering. You gave us these children. It all looked good. It was going so well. And now. This. We can't do it anymore. What is going on? And again people in this church. Drew close to us. Encouraged us. Helped us through. And as you know. Here we are today. In the next crisis. And many of you are close to us now. And you're praying for us. And supporting us. This is how it goes. Probably we've all had a crisis. I'd say we we have all had a crisis, haven't we? Some of us are right in the middle of it. And some of us could find ourselves starting a new one tomorrow. Could I ask you if you're able to stand or you want to stand and put both arms up like this if you've experienced a crisis? If you prefer to just do it sat down, that's fine. But if you stand, it's more like Moses. Now, maybe there is a crisis now. What are the current crises for us? Are we grumbling and quarrelling about Brexit, plastic in the ocean, austerity, climate change? Or is it more personal and immediate than that? Is it a relationship crisis because either we have a relationship or we don't have a relationship? Is it a financial crisis? Either we have money or we don't have money. Is it a work crisis because we've got work or not got work? We have a health crisis, an identity crisis or even... A midlife crisis. There are all sorts of crises that we face. If you think you will not face another crisis, that you're all done with crises, can I just ask you to lower your arms and sit down? Okay. Those of us still standing, our arms are aching a bit now. (laughs) Especially if you did the thing as well. (laughs) So, what is the next crisis? We don't know. When's it coming? We don't know. But it is an important part of our journey. And we can be a bit prepared. We can be ready. So can we look at how we might act And when all that confusion and uncertainty actually slams into us, can we actually know what to do? Maybe, just maybe, we can learn a bit from the story of the Israelites. You can put your arms down now and sit down and find Exodus chapter 17. Now, it's quite a long passage So um, Alice and Andrew are kindly going to read a chapter each, Um, Exodus 17, and then it goes straight through into 18 as well.
1: The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Repidin, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answers Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord saying, Then Moses' hands grew tired. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write on this scroll something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation.
2: Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliza, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I... Your father-in-law, Jethro, are coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this you are doing for the people? "'Why do you alone sit as judge?' Well, all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country.
0: Thank you. Well, we know that God has performed amazing miracles to get Moses and the Israelites this far. If you think back to what we've been studying, we've seen the burning bush, we've seen the plagues, we've seen the Red Sea, Pharaoh's been defeated, and now there's no water. How can this be happening? How can the God who turned the whole waters of the Nile to blood, and who parted the Red Sea, now leave the people without a bit of drinking water? Why would he seem to lead them out to the desert to die? Where is the sense in that? You can sympathize with their position, really. But despite all of the grumbling and quarreling and talk against Moses and God and actually questioning, is God really with us? Did he really do all that stuff? God speaks to Moses and Moses... He listens. He's ready for what God says and he obeys. He does what God asks. He goes God's way. And the result? Everyone is saved from dying of thirst. Pretty simple. Crisis averted. Then, same place, they get attacked. And it really is straight into a big fight, a fight that could have cost them everything, actually, because this is a bunch of raiders. That's what their speciality was. Find some weak people, go and get all their stuff and get them. That's the way it worked. Why would God do that to them? In Egypt, they were being protected. None of the plagues affected them. God actually protected them. And they'd fled the Egyptians. And again, God had actually opened up the Red Sea and then destroyed the army just to protect them. And now a bunch of Amalekites in the desert get to have a pop at them. One crisis after another. Have you ever known that? But Moses, on this occasion, seems to know what to do. Maybe he's heard from God. We're not told in this one. Maybe he's just taking an initiative. But it's a weird thing to kind of think, oh, I've just got to do this. Um, But he does. But there is a difference in this one. He can't do it. He can't do what seems to be required. Now, you know... How hard it is to keep your arms up for just a few minutes. Moses couldn't do it, even though he could see it working. He knew that was what he needed to do, but his arms just wouldn't do it. He had to accept the help of others on the team. And as if all of that was not enough, Moses is about to have a breakdown. We would call it a breakdown. He's overworked. He's stressed. There are too many demands being placed on him, and the people don't even realize what they're doing to him. So the leadership of that whole community is about to be thrown into chaos. What's going on? But again, Jethro turns up, and we see Moses listen. He obeys, he goes God's way and he accepts the help of a godly man. There seems to be a pattern. And Louise mentioned this last week. We can go God's way. Listen to him. Obey him. Accept the help of godly people. Or, in the famous words of Fleetwood Mac, you can go your own way. What will you do? And as we look at the story of the Israelites, and indeed our own story, the story of our lives, we can see crises are part of the journey. And we might ask, does God avert crises in our lives? There's two answers to that. Yes. No. No. We see both, don't we? In Exodus 17 and 18, one crisis is averted. Moses doesn't have a breakdown, it all gets sorted out. But another crisis isn't really averted. They're in the battle. Does God know about our crises? Yes. Again, we see that in these chapters. And sometimes he intervenes very clearly and directly. Other times, it seems an initiative is taken by an individual, Moses. Another time, the initiative seems to be taken by other godly people, Jethro. I guess this is the big one. Does God actually purposely lead us right into the middle of a crisis? Well, from Exodus 17 and 18... And from a bit of personal experience, and you might look at your life, it's hard to say no, isn't it? In fact, it's impossible. God does lead us into crisis situations. That's it. So we're there in the crisis quite probably because God has led us there. So we can conclude, I think, that following God is going to mean no exemption from crises. We will meet them. And even though we might ask, surely life is better without the crises. And these Israelites would have been better if they'd have kind of gone straight to the promised land instead of wandering around in the wilderness, getting thirsty and attacked. And surely my life would be better if I didn't keep having one crisis after another. But God is teaching, moulding and transforming his people. They will learn to depend on him. They will learn to trust him. They will get to know him and how he works and how he loves them. He's also glorified through them. And all their troubles, they get to give him worship, as it were, through their difficulties. The Israelites quarreled and tested God, speaking against him. He still gave them water and brought them through. God delivered the Israelites from the Amalekites. Well, they had to fight. And it doesn't say it in the text, but I bet some of them didn't survive that one. But they did win through as a group. Jethro visits Moses and guides him in averting the crisis. I think we can see God will bring us through and deliver us from any crisis. It might take a few hours. It might actually take the rest of our life on earth. That's a tough one, isn't it? But what of the biggest crisis of all? There is a major crisis that you cannot avert alone. A crisis that needs a decision, a choice about which way to go, whose way to follow, God's way or my own way. I'm going to need a few volunteers for this. I think I'm going to need four people. Someone to be Moses, someone to hold up his right arm, someone his left, and someone to be a rock. <laughs> Thanks, Ardell. And Luke, brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. If whoever wants to be the rock can sit in the chair. Lean against the chair and then if you two could come and now if you could raise your arms but I'd like you two to keep the arms raised there so you're helping <laughs> right <laughs> so <laughs> looking good guys We got a perfect model now could I just ask though could you perhaps just put your arm right around the shoulders of the so you're kind of like completely resting. Okay, keep those hands. Keep those hands stretched out like this. Now, it may have looked like this. We don't know, but there's a model here. There are many parallels in Exodus and the story of Moses with Jesus, and I think this is one of them. Arms outstretched, defeating and winning victory. Where does that come in? Well, the catastrophic crisis of our sin, of your sin, your rebellion against God, your rejection of him, your quarreling with him, can only be resolved through Jesus Christ. Just as if Moses had rejected what God said and decided not to strike the rock... And decided not to raise his arms and decided to send Jethro packing. If we reject the solution provided to our crisis, if we will not listen, if we will not act in obedience towards Christ, there is no other rescue plan. This is it. We will face judgment and then hell, and God will be acting in love. Allowing us the freedom to choose him or reject him. God will be acting justly because he's accepting our own choice to pay for our own sin. But this crisis that Jesus set out to avoid by dying on the cross and paying for that sin will not be averted if we walk away from him. But if we choose to follow Christ, that crisis is averted. More than that, a relationship with God is restored. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we get to know God personally, intimately. We learn more and more to trust him. As we look back over our crooked, rugged, hilly and even totally messy path. Our crisis-filled journey. Thanks, guys. I hope that wasn't too bad holding your arms up like that. Thanks. Well, where does that leave us as we think about getting to know God and trusting God in a crisis? Well, first, we really must deal with the biggest crisis our own sin, our own rebellion. Not unlike the Israelites in their quarrel against God. And for that, we must listen to God and act in obedience to his solution. Following that, other crises may be seen to develop our trust in God. We know we'll face them. We know he's with us. We can worship. We can listen. We can obey. We can trust in the help and wisdom of godly people. This is what trusting God in a crisis looks like. No guarantee of the crisis being averted. No certainty about coming through unscathed. No exemption from pain or loss or suffering. What is certain is that God will lead us, walk the journey with us, teach us, transform us and enable us to experience grace and love. In short, become more like Christ. Yes, we'll mess up. We won't listen properly. We won't always obey. And in our pride, we may reject the help of others. But ultimately, if we're depending on him and looking to glorify him, there is another sense in which we can't really mess up. I think it's tempting sometimes to think of a God-ordained perfect path through life. But the Israelites didn't have that. It was a rather meandering one. It was a rather long one. I think the question is, was their destination the goal, the only goal, or was the journey actually really really important I got a little quote here from C.S. Lewis um, I thought the only fiction he wrote was the Narnia Chronicles turns out there's a there's a cosmic trilogy so when I heard that I thought that's my holiday reading um, and it's, it's quite good um, but this is one of the quotes from one of the one of the stories he said, one of the characters says, uh, I thought we went along paths. But it seems there are no paths. The going itself is the path. And as we look at the Israelites' journey, all those low points, do you remember Andrew's graph? There's a lot of low points. As you look at your life journey, your story, and how God has led and is leading you, do you see times of pain, suffering, hurt, disappointment, rejection, failure? Those low points, is it actually not in these? that we get to know God the most? Is it not in these that we become more like Christ? Is it not in these that we learn some new insight about God? And is it not in these that we actually get to glorify God the most? The good times are important. They encourage. They inspire They motivate and they enthuse. But I would argue that it is the tough times that actually shape and transform us and deepen our relationship with God and with one another. And if we desire to get to know God, to trust him in the crisis, it seems we would do well to listen to him, obey him, and accept each other's help and wisdom. The Christian life is, after all, not primarily about God meeting our needs, but us glorifying him. And for that, I think he needs to change us. And for that, I think we need to listen, obey, And stand together when in a crisis.